0: Welcome to the future. This is Trending in Education, May 2022. Mike Palmer here, as always. For today's episode, we're going to review some of the shows and conversations we've had recently. We're going to also look ahead at a couple of shows that are on our near horizon, soon to be coming down the pike. All of that would make an amazing show. But on top of all of this, we are bringing back the one, the only. The OG of virtual co-hosts, Nancy. Nancy, welcome back to Training and Education.
1: Thanks, Mike. Always great to be back on, and we've certainly got a lot to talk about.
0: Indeed we do, Nancy. Let's run this conversation back to the end of March, right after we returned from a successful South by Southwest EDU. Many of the conversations we've had since then are based on meetings and introductions and conversations that I had around my trip down to Austin. The first of these conversations was with Sunil Gandara from Age of Learning, the company behind ABC mouse. Sunil has focused very much on the future of learning, looking at early learners, trying to build an adaptive personalized platform where we can capture some of their data and then feed them the right types of instruction the instruction is engaging. There were two things that struck me the most in the conversation with Sunil. One was when he talked about learner identity and the related point that learning is intrinsically rewarding. Let's pick up with a little bit of sound from my conversations with Sunil Gandhara from Age of Learning. Sunil Gandara, Age of Learning. At the same time, folks frequently are citing research that indicates that intervening in the early childhood years has the most net positive impact. And the flip side is also true where adverse circumstances in those early years really can set you on a a much more negative trajectory as a learner. Can you provide a little more depth to that narrative? Can you put this into context?
2: Yeah, sure. What is clear is that in terms of neural connections, the majority of them for a human happen in the first five years of life. And as such, there's a real opportunity to develop both language, math skills, and social emotion skills during those ages. And oftentimes parents, especially those from low income households, are not given the right background. They don't have the experience in terms of what they may need to do to help their their children. Additionally, there's been tremendous amount of longitudinal research that's been done by Nobel Prize winning economists like Dr. James Heckman at the University of Chicago that have found that investments in early ed yield more from a societal value perspective. It's almost a 13% return, a catered return on those investments versus investments in educational Education elsewhere in the life cycle. There's just this real need to examine, from a public policy perspective, how we can help lift all boats and really unlock human potential by increasing investment in early ed. And we're finding the same thing through ABC Mouse. You know what? What is interesting is over the past several years, we've done over 20 studies, and, and continually we find not only does it drive significant gains in math. In reading, it also helps develop learner identity and this idea that I'm a learner and I can take on new challenges. And it really ties into things like growth mindset, where a child can enter a situation and doesn't look at it as as saying, hey, I don't know this. They they look at it as like, I don't know this yet, and I can learn this. And, And it's really embodied in how they think about and approach new problems.
0: I really love the idea of the learner identity and building in the right kind of reinforcement and self-talk so that, you know, every child should feel that sense of accomplishment of struggling through something hard, you know, putting forth that effort and then, you know, having the support of folks who care. I guess you can build some of that into the emotional design of the, the product itself. While edutainment may be a triggering word, like kids do have fun while learning using these products, correct? You know, kids have fun learning. One
2: of the great discoveries that we had on ABC Mass, and I, I don't know if it's that great. We just know that from the research we've done before, learning is intrinsically motivating. You don't need external factors necessarily children, adults, you feel accomplishment when you learn something. What what we strive to do is really a balanced approach that we we reward the learning. And match our extrinsic motivations with what is intrinsically happening with the child. And we help them name it that I can do this thing. Mm -hmm. And and that further is reinforced by a teacher who can then also reward Mm -hmm. uh, the child or, or recognize you learned this. That's awesome. The same with the parent. Pulling all that together really does help a lot in terms of building learner identity. We've seen in our research.
1: That's great stuff, Mike. I'm always struck by how much we can learn from early childhood education. It's a natural place to start.
0: It certainly is, Nancy. And I know I reference the fact that I have a young son frequently on the show. Although I will say to my credit, I did several hundred episodes of Trending and Ed prior to having uh, us having our son. And I think there's some consistency on both sides of this equation. It does make you think very much about learning and it makes you think about the future of education in different ways when you realize, you know, Matthew will be college age in 2036. What will college look like? What will the future of education look like? This reminds me very much of the conversation I had with Abby Fallick, who is the founder and CEO of Global Citizen Year, a nonprofit that focuses on providing a diverse cross-section of students who are typically college age to live in a, a host country, engage there, understand some of the service learning opportunities they might get while there, and also understanding some of the true global perspective that only comes from travel, Abby was reflecting on her perspective around higher education. Let's listen to a little bit of my conversation with Abby. To me, this reminds me of something we've been talking about on this show really since 2020 is how the pandemic had an accelerating effect in a lot of different areas of the learning ecosystem uh, and just the, the world writ large. Sounds like that's very much the case and that it affected a pivot that you may have had on your roadmap. You were probably thinking about it, but also you were working with the smaller cohorts and, and really ensuring that that model was successful. Can you talk about how maybe the first chapter led into the second and then we can look at what's coming?
3: Great. You know, I couldn't agree more that that what's happened in the last couple of years has been an accelerant for trends that were already underway, particularly in, well, really in every industry and so obviously in higher education as well. Mm-hmm. And so before digging into how it's affected us, I just, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about what uh, kind of higher education do I want my kids who are now five and seven to have? And I am totally convinced they will not go to four-year college in a traditional sense. It won't be the thing. It won't be the best or the only path. And I think we've been on that path for a long time of a total reimagination of how to better align what we're teaching at that age with what young people most need to learn and the disconnect between those skills and what traditional college curriculum tend to be teaching, you know, I've been struck by the stat that says 11% of employers think that college graduates are ready for the workforce mm-hmm. and 96% of college presidents think they are. Right? right. Right. So there's this dramatic, dramatic disconnect and a huge opportunity for new pathways to fill in the gap there. Mm-hmm. So I, I think what's exciting is to see that some of those conversations that felt futuristic and radical are now much more mainstream and and part of what we're all able to now build around. But we've got to be really thoughtful as well, because if we leave the rebuild to the market alone, what we'll get is a very thinned out version of education. Hmm. We'll take the hard skills and the training that you can do online and strip out other stuff that seems, quote, inefficient or, you know, soft in some way. And actually orient around just training around skills, training kids to be coders and data analysts. And what is actually needed is training around the things that are most human, the human skills of the future that the AI and robots will never do. And that can't be taught through a coding bootcamp. And so we need impact pathways that are not just market driven to help us reimagine what a higher education can look like. So that's just a broad thought on an observation about what I think is,
1: is accelerating trends that are so urgent and essential in, in education. I loved listening to Abby. It's inspirational to engage with someone who is making their vision a reality. I also appreciated how she went beyond the traditional conversation about a gap year to connect with something deeper about service and global citizenship.
0: Yes, I agree. Reminds me also of a very recent episode that just went out with Dr. David Lenahan at tiber health who helped establish a medical school in puerto rico david talked a lot about what the future of medical education might look like but even more importantly he talked about the mission of opening up access to prospective healthcare professionals who otherwise wouldn't have had a chance at medical school a lot to get out of this conversation with david let's listen to a quick clip of it now what about emerging technology, I like to talk about virtual reality, artificial intelligence, emerging What's trends. How do you think that's going to influence healthcare? How is it going to influence medical education? Any takes on that area?
4: I would say that I wish I was an expert in this. So when I developed the modeling system, I developed a, it's a seventh degree polynomial. So it's X to the one plus Y to the seconds. So it's this, It's a math formula that I can yeah. do. Now I got a whole team of Engineers that do artificial intelligence and machine learning, and I just nod my head when they talk to me. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that all sounds great. But we've really been able to improve our accuracy. So with the polynomials, we got a r R of about 0.72. To put in perspective, the Mcat has a, a correlated value of about 0.4. Right. We're able to increase that to 0.72, and now with machine learning and neural nets, we're at 0.8. So I wish I could go into depth on what they do. Wow. Yeah. But it's really accurate and. and and I think that's what you're going to start seeing in our differential diagnoses in the hospitals. And when we treat patients, we're going to be a lot more accurate. learning learn using some of this artificial intelligence and machine learning and how we go about deploying our, what we think is the problem. Right. There's lots of things out there that are working on this. And I see the next generation of doctors, not only having to use their clinical experience, but they're going to also have to use their IT experience. So, the skill sets of our physicians are evolved. yeah, And I think for the best, by the yeah. way, I th- need to balance that clinical skill with what your expectations are. And then on the, I don't know if that's the proper word, the metaverse or how yeah. do we go about doing this stuff? I, I think you're going to start seeing that a lot more in Sims and then also a lot more with having support. So you'll be able to have a doctor or a like we we'll use a battlefield example, somebody up patient on a battlefield and maybe don't have a surgeon there to do something. So you could have a a trained tech doing it with a person with the the VR glasses on telling the individual how to go about treat that patient. Now, that's not the ideal situation, but these are in times of emergency. And so this technology is going to allow us to get care into areas across the globe where you couldn't. Like it, it... I'm not going to be able to get the top neurosurgeon to go practice in the Saddam right now. but I can get his talents there using the, the technology, and I can get his skill sets there, helping other people do it, to help other people treat. And it's actually one of the things that we are doing right now. We're looking at expanding our medical scope into Pakistan, into Africa, into uh, Turkey and Istanbul. And the advantage is this. By the way we deliver the curriculum and using these technologies, I don't need to get the physiologist into those locations every time. I can beam them from our St. Louis campus, our Puerto Rican campus there. She can teach the class there. We have a moderator there helping them understand the clinical cases of patients they're likely to see there. And I can hire at that wage level. So I'm hiring talent at that wage level, which is going to be less than what is in the United States while being able to provide the expertise into the bearings.
1: In addition to the amazing stuff about access and the importance of building trust with the community, I liked that David talked about artificial intelligence and the future of medicine. We've been doing a number of shows about AI lately.
0: Yes, we have, Nancy. In fact, looking back over the last six weeks, we just talked to Jennifer Lee at Photomath, Photomath does really interesting visual recognition using machine learning and AI to help struggling math learners. And we all struggle if we're learning, help us get to the answer quickly, just by taking a photograph of the math. I thought that was really relevant. And then we had a great conversation with Francis Valentine out of New Zealand, our first Kiwi on this show. I really enjoyed the conversation with Francis, let's hear a quick tidbit for those of you who didn't know what a Kiwi was, the conversation contained a lot more than this. I really enjoy having conversations where I get a chance to smile and both me and my guest are enjoying ourselves. I feel like that happened here with Francis describing some more details about the wonderful Kiwi. Awesome. And and real quick, can you explain to folks what a Kiwi is?
1: Sure can. A kiwi is a bird, not a fruit. Although the fruit is very delicious and it does come from New Zealand. But the kiwi is a small flightless bird. It's very nondescript. It's got a very long beak. It's brown and it has the most enormous egg. So the egg within inside the kiwi is almost like an ostrich egg. And yet the size of a kiwi is about the size of a duck. So uh, it makes no sense. It's a great bird.
0: It's a great bird and it's okay to refer to folks from New Zealand as kiwis. You're providing additional value to me as an American (laughs) in that context. I didn't realize kiwi couldn't fly. Who knew? This is why we have podcasts. This is why we're tapping into folks.
1: And they're nocturnal. So I've only ever seen a kiwi once in my entire life. So not only are they small, brown, flightless birds, they also hide in the dark. So there you go. Francis Valentine, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Such a pleasure. Thank
0: you, Michael. There's plenty in that interview beyond conversations about flightless nocturnal birds, but Hey, we like to provide a wide array of content for the sampling. With that in mind, I did want to look ahead a bit and talk about some of the conversations we've had recently. Friend of the show, Tony Wan was just interviewed. Tony was on once before. Tony is the head of content for Reach Capital, which is a venture fund focused on early stage ed tech and education companies. Here's a little bit of sound from my interview with Tony. This episode should be coming out very shortly. It's got interesting perspective from Tony coming back from ASUGSV, looking ahead at the world of conferences, and even getting a few takes of his on Web3. Let's hear a bit from Tony now.
5: Yeah, you brought up the, the idea of credentialing and kind of where that, that can go in the future. I think it ties back into kind of a longer running kind of theme or, or objective that, you know, we've been trying to evolve in the education space. You know, how do we track and measure and share credentials, you know, beyond the degrees or beyond kind of like the formal traditional way that it's been happening? I think, you know, on the blockchain, the the basic and nice thing about it is that it can capture, it does capture. There's one unified place where you can capture a lot of your activities, what you do, and in ways that can perhaps kind of bypass a lot of the interoperability issues of credentials that we have seen uh, that, it, that has been a challenge in the past. So, you know, I think that the blockchain being able to capture every action you complete online as a proof of, you know, what you've done or what you know, or who you know, I think there's a lot of potential there for that to kind of stack up and create other, you know, opportunities to kind of showcase your your skills and readiness for jobs or or, or for careers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's that ongoing question of do employers care about degrees? And so I mean that pendulum kind of swings back and forth. But I think one of the most tangible ways I see kind of Web3 evolving to make an impact is, is this is part about you know, credentialing and being able to track your record and your contributions piece of things. So mm-hmm. it ties into the credentials, it ties to like project-based learning. Yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, one of the more, to me, one of the more exciting things about it.
1: Sounds great, Mike. There's a lot of buzz around web three, isn't there?
0: Indeed. There is Nancy, a lot of hype cycle around web three, but there's some goodness in there. We've had a lot of really interesting conversations about virtual reality, augmented reality, AI, machine learning, and the blockchain, and we will hopefully continue to have those conversations in the future. Really enjoyed surveying a lot of these topics with Tony. One more conversation to listen to. This is for an upcoming interview that I had with the author of Confessions of a School Reformer. This is Larry Cuban. I believe he is our most senior interview thus far. He's an 87-year-old School reformer, professor emeritus out of Stanford Education. My conversation with Larry is coming shortly, but I was really struck by the timelessness and some of the wisdom that I was able to get from Larry in this conversation. Let's hear a quick clip of this now. But any thoughts on where we are now,
6: Larry? Yeah, if you're talking about the impact of the pandemic on school reform, it will have very little influence. Influence in changing the existing direction that has been around since the 1980s, which is basically using the metrics of test scores, making sure that uh, a lot of the kids graduate high school, trying to ensure that uh, a lot of kids, particularly kids in the low-income minority kids, go to college, mm-hmm. all of those impulses Originated in the eighties and nineties, yeah, and they have been around for the last thirty years, and they will continue. Uh, they've continued during, and I would guess after the pandemic, also interesting, yeah, because that was the
0: one piece where I guess I was hopeful that some folks have talked about the shock to system being an opportunity to change, and if you go all the way back to the seventies or the eighties, that's a long time to still be in one era. Uh, I'm always hopeful What for what might be coming next. Do you envision a new movement emerging at some point? Be, you know, How do we get out of this sort of corporate-influenced, metrics-driven, test-driven, standards-driven mode? Will we get out of it? <laughs> Should we muddle through a- any thoughts on this?
6: Well, uh, here's the thing. I, I look at school reform as a product of what's going on in the larger society. Mm. Schools, the larger society, whatever movements occurred, and I mentioned the progressive movement, the civil rights, the business-informed reforms of the last 30 years, 40 years, all of those were larger movements in the society that spilled over the schools. Mm -hmm. Schools mirror the society. They don't change the society, as a lot of reformers think they do. Right. So whatever movement is afoot now before during and after the pandemic I can't tell you. But right now we continue in the embrace of the business informed school reform movement that began in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And that's about 40 years now. Uh, Remember, the progressive movement began in the 1890s and really lasted until World War II. That's true. So that's almost 50 years. So these reform movements, once they move from the society into the schools, they last a long time in schools because schools are basically conservative institutions. Mm -hmm.
0: Both Tony Wan and Larry Cuban will be appearing in episodes coming up in May. We have lots of other new things on the horizon in May, including launching new versions of trending in education that focus on a particular subject. So in the example of David Lenahan's episode, that might be on trending in medical education, for example. So more to come as we determine the specific strands and launch new feeds that provide just a particular varietal of Trends in Education. More to come on that launching in the coming weeks. Same thing for our long dormant newsletter. It is showing signs of new life as spring is about to spring. Happy May Day for those of you who celebrate. We're going to wrap up here. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for joining, Nancy.
1: Thanks, Mike. Always fun to be on.
0: Outstanding.
1: And with that,
0: We'll wrap up this kickoff to the month of May with Trending in Education. Hopefully you're enjoying what you're hearing here. If you like this type of programming, be advised that we have two other podcasts that Palmer Media is producing. One is Running It Back, Lessons Learned from Sports and Leadership with Tarlin Ray and myself. Tarlin's been featured on Trending in Education many times. We're almost 50 episodes in. We release every couple weeks, and we're taking a look at what's happening in the world of sports to try to find lessons learned. Check us out at runningitback.fm. And then the other podcast that launched this year is Inside Jackson Station, available at insidejacksonstation.com. Also, anywhere you listen to podcasts, find Inside Jackson Station. You'll hear sound from Nappy Brown. You'll hear conversations with Dan and artists who played at this legendary blues bar in rural South Carolina. Lots going on. More shows in the cooker. Stuff is still coming down the pike. Thanks as always for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please subscribe to Trending in Education. Look for that newsletter. More to come as we launch these spinoff threads based on the core content we've all grown to love here at Trending in Ed. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.